So, big shout out to uh, Pastor Bruce for handing me what I thought was a pretty tough movie to find uh, God at the movies in. But Bruce has a sense of humor, so maybe he knew exactly what he was doing. Bruce, if you can hear me, thanks a lot. It was, have you all seen the movie? Some of you said no, shoot. Um, there's nothing worse than being part of a conversation with other people where they've seen a movie and you haven't and they're laughing. And But we have some clips I'm going to show you as well um, that hopefully will bring you into the movie and, and hopefully you'll get up to speed as we go along. Let me, let me just begin by telling you that it is a real privilege to be here this morning among you. I, I've been a pastor here in Edmonton for, for over 20 years, and whenever I have a Sunday free, um, we tend to get out of town. Is this better? No, still not working. Um, we get out of town. I've never been to the river before, before today. And that's my loss. I'm privileged to be here today, and I really thank you for inviting me to be here. Um, and I hope that after I'm finished speaking, you might see me being back again one day. Um, and I haven't ruined my chances to do that. It's a real privilege for me to speak about movies. I love movies. And the arts, especially film and other sorts of storytelling, are actually places for people to meet, opportunities for people to meet. They're meeting places. And we're going to meet today in the movie Crazy Rich Asians. And I hope that we will also find the one true God, King of kings, Lord of lords, the one with the name above all names, more powerful than all the money in the world, at the movies too. I believe that I'm going to have to climb up, if you will, to get outside of whatever theme park of a worldview I've stuck to all my life to get outside, to take some risks, to take some scary steps even, to get outside of the envelope that I've lived in, because that's where this movie takes me. Now, I believe that I've, if you will, connected a rope to the highest point that the author of the book Crazy Rich Asians, Kevin Kwan, and the movie director, John Chu, will take us. And on a route that they have carefully and intentionally laid out. And this morning, because I have the microphone, I'm going to be telling you what I see as I climb. Some things, repeatedly, and I'll just tell you that whenever the Bible writers do that, repeat things, it's because they want us to notice something that otherwise they're afraid we'll miss. And I think the movie director's done that for us this morning. As I climb, I could tie one end of the rope to a sturdy base and climb up that. I could do that. But the sweetest way to climb is to have someone else hold the loose end so that we gently 
pull against each other, leaning in, chatting, laughing, watching each other, you holding steady while I climb, the holder being as vital as the climber. So hold out your hands and let me hand you one end of my rope. And the rope that we'll use this morning, once were very, very loose threads, but has now been turned into a tightly braided rope. The other end of that rope is tied to me. And Holy Scripture is going to be the rope between us. Different threads bound together into a story stretched over many thousands of years. With these three, you, me, and Holy Scriptures together, I am going to climb up into a world among the wealthy in Singapore where I have never been before. From my perch up there, I'm going to highlight two things. One, some intimate details of the young Chinese Singapore family. I'm going to invite you to develop some empathy for this family. Second, I want to point out to you how the movie director John Chu has positioned or postured the Christian faith in this movie for some, maybe even most, in Asian culture. So let's begin with the young family by highlighting very briefly some of the details of a well-known Bible story, the Bible story of Ruth. And we're doing that to observe similarities and differences, contrasts. What you can know by reading between the lines from the story of Ruth is that moving among people who are not your own people was really only ever possible if you brought some of your own people with you, at least one of your own, preferably two or more. And maybe then you wouldn't need the others, those that didn't want you to be their kind of people. Maybe then you could just survive. So here's words from the Word of God, the Book of Ruth. There was a famine in Israel, and a certain man, Elimelech of Bethlehem and Judah, went to live in the country of Moab, where there was food. He, his wife Naomi, and two sons, Malan and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab, and they remained there. But the husband of Naomi died. And when they had lived there about 10 years, both sons who married, women from there, also died. So the woman was left alone without her two sons and her husband. Then she started making plans to return with her daughters-in-law to the country of Moab. Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your mother's house. They wept together aloud, but Ruth 
and only Ruth said, do not press me to leave. Do not press me to leave you or to turn back from following you. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Meanwhile, back in Israel, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a prominent rich man of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. As it happened, Ruth came to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Boaz saw her and said to his servant, who was in charge of the reapers, to whom does this woman belong? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She's that Moabite who came back with Naomi. And Boaz spoke to Ruth. Now listen, my daughter. Do not go to glean wheat or barley, whatever it was. Do not glean, go to another field to glean. Do not leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Keep your eyes on the field that is being reaped and follow behind them. I've ordered the young men not to bother you. If you get thirsty, go to the vessels and drink from what the young men have drawn. Then she fell to the ground with her face to the ground and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me when I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and your mother and your native land and came to a people you did not know before. These are the words of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You know, in the story of Ruth, and in the story of Rachel in Crazy Rich Asians, neither are rich. And as newly arrived foreigners, immigrants, both are relatively poor. And each have attracted a matrimonial and or otherwise kind of gaze from a wealthy potential life partner. And there's another subtle similarity. In the story, in the stories, both young women are coached by old, extremely devoted, clever, even shrewd women. I just point this out because I think there's a sermon series there. I really do. We could call it women in desolate circumstances, asserting power never officially given. That would be so rad. Mention it to Bruce. In both of our scriptures, Naomi and, sorry, in both of our stories, Naomi and Ruth, and the movie, Rachel and her mother Carrie, and Nick's mother Eleanor and her mother um, Ama, the older women coach the younger women from behind the scenes, don't they? However, the similarity 
similarities between the Bible and the movie, I suggest end there. Boaz, the biblical power broker, welcomes the foreigner Ruth into his presence, while Nick's mother, the Singapore power broker, does not welcome Rachel. Here's a clip. And you are not our kind of people. It's precisely here that some of the movie audience think that they have the right or think that they've found reason to unload, download some self-righteous Western European colonial-influenced biblical judgment on most of the young family and their friends in this movie. I mean, after all, we're all created in God's image and we can't behave like that. We're supposed to care for the fatherless and the widow and the orphans and the poor and not turn them away. In fact, in my preparation for this sermon, those are practically the only kind of Christian approaches that I'd found on the internet. Why does Eleanor not welcome Rachel into the family? Well, from where I've climbed up to now, looking around, I can already tell you, it's complicated. For starters, let's establish a basis for making comments that are grounded in reality and not cling to judgmental and prejudicial attitudes. What I can already see may stir up some judgment among us, even among you this morning. Resist judgment and keep an open mind like Jesus did with the hookers, the various sinners and tax collectors in his day. So in no particular order, A, why it's complicated, A, Singapore became what it is through very different circumstances, unlike the Canada we as colonializing settlers formed. And Singapore is actually more like the circumstances of the indigenous nations in our country. B, an ethos that the youngs and many in the Far East live by is one of clinging as closely as possible to aesthetically perfect, strong, and in-control appearances at all times. And C, religion for many in the Far East, like here, is just one part of people's lives. And their religion is more oriented toward tradition than things spiritual or having to do with life after death. So, first, circumstances. Some history of Malaysia and Singapore. This is so important, and I, I'm sorry it's going to feel like a history lesson. Maybe there are some history buffs here. Just humor me. We have to get through this part. So important. Singapore is one of, if not the 
oldest locations where a Chinese community is known to have existed outside of China. The Chinese lived among the indigenous in Singapore. Singapore was frequently caught in the struggles of superpowers of the day, and I just mentioned some, the Tamils, the Buddhist Indonesians, Thailand, and the Portuguese who destroyed the Singapore settlement in 1613, and it sank into obscurity for two centuries. Then the Dutch came along and they established a monopoly over a huge region for trading and that sort of thing, but they stayed out of Singapore. Later, the British challenged the Dutch monopoly and chose to make Singapore a super important port. In 1819, modern Singapore was born. Singapore was set up as a free port and traders from around the world flocked to Singapore instead of the Dutch ports because they wanted to avoid the Dutch trade restrictions and tariffs. Five years later, the population was 10,000 people in Singapore. And trade volume, this is a staggering number, trade volume was $22 million in 1824. That's huge and Britain took control of Singapore. By 1871, just 45 years later, the population had risen to over 100,000. Half of those people were Chinese through mass immigration. People um, attempting to escape economic hardship in southern China. And many of those Chinese arrived as poor, impoverished immigrants. Now, although World War I did not deeply affect Singapore, the British government nonetheless devoted significant resources into building a $500 million naval base there, $1939. If you could just imagine how much money that is today. Winston Churchill touted that new naval base in Singapore as the Gibraltar of the East. Big words from a little man. Well, you know what happened next. The Japanese attacked the American naval base at Pearl Harbor at the same time as Malay, which is right above Singapore. The British military at Singapore believed that the Japanese would attack by sea from the south because of this really uh, dense jungle to the north. And they were confident that Fortress Singapore would never fall. Well, the Japanese army swiftly advanced southward through the jungle and then on bicycles they transported through the jungle. The Japanese had conquered the entire Malay Peninsula and were poised to attack Singapore. Two weeks later, it was captured. The Japanese occupied Singapore for three and a half years. The army imposed harsh measures against the local population, but particularly ruthless were they against the Chinese ethnic population. The Japanese screened citizens, including children, to check if they were Chinese and thus presumed anti-Japanese. Mass executions claimed between 25 and 50,000 people in Singapore. 
food decreased and black markets flourished, Japanese occupation authorities, interestingly, put all of the land back in the hands of the local people. When the Japanese surrendered in 1945, the British military came back as the colonial administrators in Singapore. The European colonizers wanted everything to go back to normal. But fun fact, no. Something interesting had happened as a result of the war. The Singaporeans, well, Malay and the Singaporeans, first-hand witnessing of the defeat of the British by an Asian power had changed forever what they perceived as the invincible British colonial overlords. And the British backed out of all of their colonies, including Singapore, by 1963. And all of the colonies, except Brunei, um, joined the brand new Malaysia the same year. And it was once again hard for the Chinese Malaysians. There was rampant discrimination against those not Malay throughout Malaysia. And Malaysia was frightened by Singapore. There was jealousy that Singapore would become the new heart of the, of the new Malaysia. Singaporeans, you see, were prosperous, educated in British, the British system. They were globally connected. So the new Malaysia came up with a brilliant idea. They just kicked Singapore out of the new Malaysia. That didn't go over real well either. There were two major race riots in Singapore, but Singapore did leave forever in 1965. Singapore reluctantly declared independence. The old woman in our movie, Ah Ma, Eleanor's mother, she would have witnessed and lived through this economic, military, and racial turmoil, even if she was watching it from a safe distance. And she fought and sacrificed, believing that she was making something which would last for her family, a fortune. She perceived the fortune to be her family's enduring salvation. Now that's some of the history. Those are the circumstances of Nick's family. I think it's really important to understand that. Why does Eleanor not accept Rachel into the family? Because she perceived Rachel as a threat to their fortune. Secondly, there was an ethos that the youngs and many in the Far East live by. An ethos of clinging as closely as possible to aesthetically perfect, strong, and in-control appearances. Now here are just a couple of examples of that, but it is throughout the movie. When news reaches Eleanor that her son Nick is bringing a girl, Rachel Chu, to his friend Colin's wedding, Eleanor is caught off guard. She's ambushed, if you will, surprised, and, and most importantly, she's in control of the situation at the hands of the aunties for not being in control of the situation. She chooses to 
interrupt her Bible study at an ironically critical part too, and that was no accident either. She interrupts her Bible study to gain control of the situation. Here's a clip. You know what happens right after that? She gets up from her Bible study. She calls her son in the United States, and we hear the phone ringing. Never mind the Bible study. Got to get control. She asserts herself, doesn't she? And she does not welcome Rachel in the family. She doesn't succumb to Rachel's charms, nor Nick's wishes, except on her own terms, in her time, if ever. Think back, those of you that have seen the movie, think back to when Rachel leaves one particularly aggravating scene with the grandmother, Amma, and Eleanor, the mother. Think of that scene in particular when for appearance's sake, Nick is forbidden by Amma to run after her. And in that culture, elder respect is a big deal. That is, in fact, the overriding concern for appearing strong and in control at all times. So here's another movie clip. All right, now let's look next at religion. In this culture, as we've already heard, as I've already suggested, religion is predominantly more about tradition. Religion is about distilling values and principles out of scripture and fitting them into everyday life when it suits. The, the Bible study is considering the transcendent words, set your minds on things that are above and not on things that are on earth. And this reading is interrupted with the words of one auntie, as we saw, is Nick not bringing a girl to Colin's wedding? Now, I don't know about you, but that just might be the best example of not setting your mind on things that are above. And this is true for us too. This movie offers us an opportunity to bear witness to the fact that we do the same things. It's just made really obvious in the movie here. Now, did you notice that the only view we got of the church in Singapore, or any church for that matter in this movie, was this one? And I want to draw your attention to the fact, to this particular fact. Do you note how the church is totally overshadowed by the five-star hotel next door? That's not an accident. The director chose that perspective. He's trying to communicate the diminished or non-critical role of religion in Singapore high society. Thank you. The church has recently been converted into a plaza of theme retail, food, and beverage outlets. A hundred million dollar renovation. There's no hint of religion having anything to do with an afterlife. Church no longer happens there, just weddings. And the cultural heritage was preserved, but the religion has been supplanted by a concern for aesthetics. And this actually is a perfect seg segue into the movie's focus on the young family's concern for aesthetic appearance. Although throughout this movie, repeatedly, there's 
continual references to beauty and glamour. It might be worth viewing the scene of the photography session with a Hong Kong branch of Nick's family. Now this is a really, really famous photographer. While here we're going to see the exaggerated for sure, but the overriding desire for control over aesthetic appearances. Here's another clip. I don't know if you could catch that, but what was happening was they wanted to look just one way because he'd figured out what their optimal angle was and he wouldn't move and the photographer's like, yeah, if you move a little bit, no, no this is it. Then the photographer says, then I'm done. We're going to publish something in Hong Kong Vogue. He wanted to be in the American Vogue and he, got, and he took it out on his wife for some reason. Somehow it was her fault. Um, and that very same scene shows up again later when they go to the wedding and they get filmed again and they pose in their optimal angles. Anyway, I guess I thought it was funnier than you did. Um, to, bring, to bring Rachel into this hyper-concerned with appearances family, if she were unremarkable and wouldn't stand out aesthetically, this would just be too much of a stretch for Ama and for Eleanor. You see, given where this family came from, there's a lot at stake when Nick picks a bride. We might find their concerns over the top, but believe me, the, the director has gone through great pains to paint this society as existing and living for the highest expressions of glamour. But is all of this really enough? I'm climbing now just about as high as the director allows us to go in this movie. Consider this. The very first thing that we get to notice about Singapore outside of the airport is what? Outside of the airport. Anybody remember? It's a trick question. What shows up seven times throughout this movie? What for Singapore is as iconic as Stonehenge is for Britain? In our first meeting of this icon, the director's chosen perspective purposely makes it appear as the biggest thing on the skyline of all Singapore. Everyone who visits Singapore knows it, while very few who visit Singapore ever even notice the $100 million renovated church or even know it's there. Here it is. There's this sweeping skyline, and then the director pauses on that building again. You can't see it in the dark light. The next clip. And lastly, the clip which incidentally throws an absolutely gorgeous wedding earlier in the movie. Like, I mean, that's the part where I cried in the movie when the bride steps into the water. Oh my gosh, I, you know father of four daughters, I, I, I just, just about died. What, what this family does in, with respect to that wedding is just throws it into shade. Watch this. There's synchronized swimmers in that pool. Nobody's just putting their toes in there. And fireworks, it's almost orgasmic. I didn't think I'd say that. It's just such a big deal. That's what their Singapore is all about. With its full immersion pool on the roof with, what, a hundred synchronized swimmers? 
and then bring on the citywide fireworks display almost the moment they kiss Nick and Rachel. Wealth, unadulterated, conspicuous wealth. But its hold has loosened for Nick. He proposed to Rachel and said, I'm leaving all of this behind. Now, lest I be accused of being too hard on the culture displayed here, accusing it of being superficial, I would quickly say that there is a place for beauty in the world. And maybe here in the West, we put too much emphasis on function and not enough on aesthetics. Fyodor Dostoevsky wrote, beauty will save the world. Thomas Aquinas asserts that God is beauty itself. And Anselm argues that God must be the supreme beauty for the same reasons that God must be justice and other such qualities. The reason we, why we gravitate toward beauty is because God created us in God's image. And it's not only okay to enjoy beauty and seek it for ourselves, but it's also what God created us to do. God has given us beauty through nature with majestic mountains, enchanting valleys, vast oceans, white sandy beaches that seem to stretch forever, and mighty rivers that carry themselves thousands of miles. We also find tremendous beauty in the great variety of creatures that God has made to inhabit the earth. But the most magnificent of all creatures are humans. Lots of beauty and profound, even spiritual meaning is transmitted aesthetically too in gestures. And gestures in the Far East are hugely important. One small gesture, thoughtfully, cleverly selected and showcased, can transfer volumes of now unneeded words and explanations. We'll show you the next clip. Maybe what I have to say first, though, is this. Nick's mother is wearing a ring with a green stone. Just saying. All right, let's see the clip. Oh my God, give me a moment. <laughs> I just need 30 seconds with this woman. Nick has chosen Rachel over and against his mom. And Nick's mom, like Boaz with Ruth, has extended hospitality, though reluctantly, and has chosen Rachel. And Nick's mom has chosen Rachel over the wishes of her mom, Ama. The aunties are also on board, but we could see they were already shifting toward Rachel's side by movie's end. Now, we don't see Ama, the grandmother, warmly welcoming Rachel, not even Eleanor. That just would be unrealistic. But this is a huge step. Once you buy into any view of life, that is, that you're, once you buy into any view of what life is ultimately about and find your place in the world, falling in love with Rachel's will threaten that. Love at the 
best of times is a threat because it has the power to pull the stable, the traditional, the in control, and climb up and over levels of status quo and make us want to give it all up for one not rich, never been to a British boarding school or born into a wealthy family foreigner, American Rachel of a kind. Thanks for journeying with me this morning. We followed steps of hospitality similar to Boaz. After all, and Boaz was inspired to act the way he did by the view he had of the Most High God, the Lord of Lords, King of Kings. Who knows what we could do if we were so inspired? There's a love interest in your life too, right under your nose. There's someone who's never been rich, wasn't born into a wealthy family, began his humble life as a refugee, lived as a vagrant, a Middle Eastern Jew who's demonstrated unbelievable love for you and for me. God is calling you and I in love beyond our comfort zones, asking us to press the envelope. Can we afford what that call might cost us? Will we really answer that call? I can tell you that the view from here today has been interesting and even life-altering and very much worth the effort. Thank you for journeying with me. Amen. Please join with me in a prayer. God in heaven, the world is such a marvelous place and so complicated. It's so easy to understand from where we stand that we would be judgmental for our part on other cultures that differ significantly from ours. God, we pray that you would open our eyes to see what basic circumstances you came from for our sake and open our hearts to you, the one, the only, the true living God, name above all names. Amen.